0: Hey friends, my name is uh, Pastor John Jay, I'm the lead pastor here, and this morning, Brian you can throw up the first slide for us, this morning we're going to talk about um, anchors of belonging. So it's the first of four different teachings as we get ready for Advent, Advent is almost here, do we know what Advent is? Advent is the season right before Christmas now you might think christmas has already started because this like red cups are out at starbucks advent is how we get ready but before advent we have four weeks together and we're going to talk about really practical stuff if you've been with us for the last month we've been in this really like heavy complex material uh, of crisis and promise and so everyone last week we took a deep breath we came out of a conversation about death and new life, and today we're going to talk about what it means to be the church together. That's the next four weeks. So today is sort of the importance of worship, the anchor of this congregational gathering that we're doing. Uh, then next we'll talk about uh, friendship in community, so the importance of spiritual friendship, and then a service and also giving for Sundays, highly practical, and uh, yeah, so that's what this picture is about. A uh, fishing boat with an anchor. Now, one of the things that I am aware of, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but in certain churches, this one, it feels that way. There's all kinds of things we could say about the architecture of this building. But a lot of congregations, their sanctuaries, their auditoriums or worship spaces are shaped like upside down chips. L- literally, if you look at the way the roof rafters meet, it looks like the sort of bottom of a ship. And that's intentional because one of the primary metaphors or symbols of the church is a boat that's sort of sailing across the insanity of stormy waters. So anchors became early symbols for uh, Jesus followers. So that's why we're going to talk about it in this way. Now, if you have felt like the world is quite tossing about at sea, then it would make sense that we would gather together at a regular basis, in a place where we can sail across those rough waters and not drown ourselves. Uh, So that's what we're going to do together. You heard the reading today from Hebrews 10. If you have a Bible, you can open to it. Let's pray and let's begin. Dear God, thank you for these friends that have gathered today. Pray that you would be with us and between us, that you would make your own presence known. Open our minds, open our hearts, that we would hear a fresh word this morning. Be with those who could not be here today. For whatever reason, bring them back to us safe and secure in the weeks ahead. And we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to start this morning a little further back. Brian, you're going to need to move these forward for me if you could. Just one forward. I'm going to start... After the Ten Commandments. So, the Ten Commandments are given. You remember the Ten Commandments? You probably saw them like at, maybe at school or at the courthouse or uh, maybe it's cross-stitched on your wall somewhere. Ten Commandments show up in the middle of the book of Exodus. And it's sort of this climax of the book where God gives to the Israelites, to the people of God, a, a really compact understanding of what it means to follow God and to live in God's good world. These ten words, these ten instructions And what's happened is they've left slavery in Egypt and they are on this journey to this new land. And this journey is mostly so that they might change in the movement. That moving from Egypt to Canaan, they could become the people of God and it takes quite a while. They have to get to know this God that has encountered them, that has called them out and rescued them. They don't quite know who this God is. It's been a long time since this God has spoken to them. They've heard stories about God from their ancestors, So, it makes sense that when God shows up on the mountaintop, Mount Sinai, and it says it shows up in fire and lightning and thunder and smoke, that they are terrified. Now, let me ask the question. You don't have to answer it, but just think about it. Has there been a time recently when you have encountered what feels like the living God and it has been for you terrifying? It's just just ask the question because it's not the way that I typically encounter God, where I'm so frightened that I'm like wetting the bed kind of thing. No, maybe. But that's there's something that's a little bit more gentle about our understanding of the divine. But in the ancient understanding, that is not the case. It says, and I'll read it for you in chapter 20, when the people witnessed the thunder and lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. The language for fear and trembling is the language of a ship tossed about on the sea. They were like a boat about to capsize. And so they say to Moses, their leader, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. That's a different way of understanding things. I would, it would be strange if all of you came up to me one Sunday and said, listen, would you go talk to God, but do not ask God to talk to us or we're going to die. I would ask what you did last night and why that's such a concern. <laughs> then the people stood at a distance. They start to hike away from the mountain. And it says, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Next slide. That language of stepping back standing at a distance and sending someone else forward is a very common understanding of how the people would interact with their God so we open up the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and we come across this passage it's telling this story pulling all of these images together from the Hebrew Scriptures from living life in the temple from life in Jerusalem uh, from life in exile and you hear this language therefore my friends since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. That language of confidence is strange because you just heard the people were terrified. This confidence reminds me of one particular person, Ruthie, my daughter who's eight. And if you know Ruthie, you know that she has just like extra gumption was given it at birth we remember when she was born ruthie you don't remember when you were born but we told you this. we tell you this story all the time that uh as she was being like wheeled out right they had her in in your lap you were being wheeled out right because that's right it's hard to walk after you've created a human um so you've got ruthie (laughs) they're wheeling y'all both out and you can see her kind of like look up at the lights and see them and Corey always says that it looked like Ruthie was saying, oh, let me at it. Like, this world is so big and so amazing. And that's just how she's lived her whole life. So it's been super fun to be her dad. But um, one of the things that she does now, she's gotten older, really, both of our kids, is we don't have to run errands anymore. Because if you've got a kid who's got gumption, you can send them to do anything. And they'll do it. And the bonus of that, too, is for things like waiting for a table at a restaurant. If you send an eight-year-old girl, like, there's a good chance she's going to get more done than if you send this <laughs> to do anything. Right? And uh, so this is a picture of when we went to, to Disney a couple of weeks ago. I survived Disney. Right? Uh, and she needed directions, so she just, you know, tails it over to one of the folks who works there And speaks her mind. That language. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter into the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. That kind of confidence is the way that like Ruthie lives in the world. The other story I have to tell you about confidence. is super funny. And has less to do with this passage. But I have to tell it. Is at uh, Halloween. We just had Halloween. If you don't have a place to trick or treat. You should come to Old Town. Because Old Town is super fun. ...for getting candy. All the stores around here uh, are giving out candy. So we're walking down Colorado and uh, Lisa Barney's is right there. And you remember, you know, kind of what kind of stores are around Barney's. And uh, so we pass and now Ruthie and Jude have learned... ...that if you go into the store and you run up to the counter, that's where the candy is. Uh, if you know Old Town really well, you know that one of the oldest and most reputable establishments in Old Town, is the adult video store. And it doesn't, like, all that my kids needed to know is that there was candy in said store. And so, right, so we're, like, walking down the street, and I'm behind doing something, and Ruthie just turns, and and she. there was a security guard there that caught her at the door to give her the candy at the door, because the folks who run that place are still kind and love to give candy to kids. So anyway, that's gumption, that's confidence, to like run ahead without fear of what might be waiting on the other side. That's what we're being invited into this morning by whatever Jesus has done. It has changed our relationship with God so that rather than back we go, trembling and afraid, we can encounter the real living God with confidence. We can run ahead Like that eight-year-old who has not yet learned to be afraid of the world. Or maybe just said, fear is going to hold me back. And moves forward. Next slide. So, let me tell you about the temple. Because the temple is all inside of this passage. It's the background imagery. So if any of this starts to feel strange, we'll talk about the temple and it'll make a little bit more sense. When we say the temple... The language in Hebrews is that we have confidence to enter the Haggios, the holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way. The language there is like a really freshly slaughtered sacrifice, new or just slaughtered. Opened up for us through the curtain, the curtain we'll talk about since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's temple language, let us approach or draw near with true hearts and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, that's temple language, from evil conscious and our bodies washed with pure water, that is temple language. It's all over the place. So here is what the temple was and what we're talking about with all of this. The temple is in Jerusalem at the time when the Bible was written. It's the second temple that's there. The temple is kind of a permanent building of what was before the tabernacle. The tabernacle is what was built when they were moving through the wilderness in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Before they have a homeland, they still have a sanctuary or a a kind of temple that is portable. So that's the tabernacle. When they build the temple... It's the same kind of ideas. Where is God located and how do we get to God? Well, it's on the temple. The temple is built on the high point in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is at the high point in the nation of Israel. That's very common for temples. You would build houses for the gods on high places. And why? Because you need to get close enough to the skies where the gods live. So like in, if you remember from history class, do you remember ziggurats? You don't remember how to spell the word ziggurats. But the ziggurats are, are built mountains for people who didn't have a mountain, but they needed to put a temple somewhere. So they would build a mountain and they would put a temple on the top. That's the temple. Also understood as something like the navel of creation or the navel of the world. Where the heavens and the earth connect. Super important that you know where this place is. Because you've got to figure out how to get to God. There are these gradations of intimacy and closeness in the temple. And depending on what kind of person you are, what your office or status is, you can get closer or farther away from the presence of God. In the middle of the temple, in red, is something called the Holy of Holies or the holiest place. And like nobody gets to go there, save one person once a year. The high priest. Nobody else goes in that space. If you go in that space and you're not supposed to be there, there's a good chance you're not coming out of that space in one piece. In the Holy of Holies is this incense and this cloud it is all, i mean it is this experiential mashup of intensity but only one person goes in and it is divided by the rest of the building by this really thick curtain or veil side note when jesus is crucified and killed and dies it says in the book of matthew that the temple curtain that it tears in two meaning that something has changed in our access to the divine outside of the holy of holies is this kind of inner court that certain priests certain offices could go into to perform kinds of rituals and liturgy and then outside that is is a little bit more public of a space but still only certain people could get to that this little pale yellow over here is called uh, the court of women so because the world is like it is for a long time there are places that men can go that women couldn't And then outside the court of women, these would have been Jewish women, is called the court of the Gentiles. So those who were not part of the people of God at the time, the people of Israel, but still would want to come maybe offer a sacrifice at the temple. And what the passage in Hebrews is saying, I'll read it again for you, is since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, the image is of somebody sprinting through all of those barriers right to the center of the heart of God. Full confidence. And why? Because there has been some new channel opened in that space. Next slide. The language of sprinkling, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Whenever covenants were cut, whenever places were being dedicated, you would go and you would do a kind of ritual and a blessing and a consecration of those spaces. And often, not just in Judaism, but in lots of ancient religions, you would take some blood from a slaughtered animal and you would throw it against the door. And that was part of the way of making that space Sacred and full of meaning. And so it says in this passage that we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. In the next slide, it says that we are washed with pure water. If you, they've just done some new excavation at the Temple Mount uh, and found all of these mikvahs. So mikvah is something called a ritual bath. When we talk about baptism, our baptismal Area is in the back here. Um, That is inherited symbolism and meaning from the idea of a Jewish mikvah. So Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in some kind of ritual cleansing ceremony. But there are all of these sunken-in wading pools all around the temple because if you were going to enter into the temple and you would make this journey, like maybe a couple of different times a year, from wherever you lived. In Israel to Jerusalem and you had to like clean yourself up, not just physically because you had been hiking for a while, but, but also spiritually and emotionally. You would need to wash whatever had gotten on you, off of you. And so you would walk down into these pools and you would clean yourself up so that you could move a little bit closer and closer to the presence of God. Can you feel all of the different layers? of care that we're given to the approaching the divine. Now, on Sundays, like, I wake up at 5.30-ish to start my day, and I'm usually at church at about 8.20, and we pray at 8.30, and then we pray again at 10, and then we enter into this space in in a hustle. I'm not sure if I'm always aware of how much care I'm even taking to enter into this space. But imagine all of this care given. If we, like, checked your hands at the door, if we did, like, a smell check, that would be strange. We're not going to institute that, but it would be that kind of thing. Something is happening that is preparing the people to encounter God. And all of this takes place in the context of public worship. People gathered together in one place for one aim, one purpose. So what is worship doing for us? And why is it important that we show up together? That's what we're going to talk about today. I mean, at its core, it's that we hope to encounter God. Not that we hope to encounter ideas about God. We do. We talk around these things sometimes, but that we might actually encounter the divine. At least that's what I'm here hoping for. And I know for many of you that's what you're here hoping for. So worship. Next slide. It locates us. It locates us because whether we realize it or not, just being in this world is dislocating. It's jarring. It sets us on other paths, it takes us to other places we did not intend to go, and we need rhythms and patterns and habits of reorientation, of relocating us in a true space. So next slide. Let's talk about this location. One of the places, ways that it locates us is in just physically where are we? If you notice the room, if you had a floor plan of this room, you would see that the building is laid out like a cross. It's a cruciform aerial plan. This is a very common and sacred way of organizing space for churches and cathedrals. But we are in the middle of the Jesus story, quite physically. Part of what it means to come into this place and worship together is that it pulls us back into our central story. You remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, the language from Deuteronomy that you would say when you would enter the temple, my father was a wandering air man and they went down to Egypt and then we were down in Egypt and God brought us out. It's that locating the people of Israel in their big story. When we come to worship, part of what we're doing is allowing God to bring us back into our central story, to locate us in God's world, to remind one another that that is the true place of reality and existence. And that so much of what we see around us, what the scriptures call the cosmos or the world, is uh, at best an approximation. And often... A desecration. You are in God's world with God's family. And in case it wasn't clear, we're going to set you in a space that even looks and feels, situates you in the cross with a family called brothers and sisters of the faith. That's where you are. Next slide. When are we? If you were to take a, when you buy, like, a, does anyone buy day timers anymore or planners? No, it's all on your phone at this point. A couple of us do. Folks who I know to be well organized. Uh, there are all kinds of different ways to, to keep time. You might be, well, if you were in finance, you would keep time by things like tax seasons. You're in fiscal numbers. If you're a parent, you might keep time by when your kids are in school and on break. If you, Zach, I'm thinking of you, you keep time in sometimes these two-year increments as you work on policy and legislation. There are different ways to understand how time moves in the world. Often when we think of time, it might be hallmark time. So whenever people tell us we've got to go buy a card for someone, that's when you know what time it is. The church has another way of understanding time. It's subtle here, in other traditions it might be more explicit, something called the church calendar or the church year, which are these ways of plotting the Jesus story across a year cycle such that when we move through worship week to week, we are retelling that story. So I'm going to ask you in like a month, what time is it? And you're going to say it's the time of anticipation. We are waiting with expectation for the coming of Christ into the world at Christmas. Or I'll ask you at Lent, what time is it? And you're going to say, it's the season of, of penitence, of sadness, of confession, as we move toward the cross. Or you could say, when I ask what time it is on a Sunday, it's Resurrection Day. It's the day when Jesus is raised again and anew. It's the first day of new creation. Now, you can only say those kind of things if you have what we would call like the eyes of faith, eyes to see. When Heschel, a great Jewish theologian talked about sabbath and sabbath and sabbaths or shabbat services are another way to understand the importance of of worship and of locating sacred meaning in time he says that the sabbath is like an architecture in time that god builds for us and invites us into and when we walk into that new realm of time and look around the world looks different it's the same kind of idea in the next all of this is getting us to this question in this location of who we are. Now it starts to feel really personal. Because I don't know about you, but for me, the world has plenty to tell me about who I am or or what I'm not enough of yet. I have a list. I don't actually keep it written down, but I keep it in my head of all the things I've got to do to prove my worth, to prove my value, to earn blessing or earn belonging. When we come into this place, you will receive an identity and a name given to you often through the people sitting next to you, but it's the voice of God. There's a story that I remember hearing Uh, often of it doesn't matter and this is particularly true like in a black church context Um, it doesn't matter who you were or what you did the last six days of the week you could be a janitor at the lowest point in the hierarchy but when you show up in church they're going to give you white gloves and they're going to hand you communion and you are going to be a priest And who you are is not contingent on what you get paid to do. Who you are is what God has called you to be in this world. So if you have been living a life that is undignified in all realms, and your worth has been determined by outside forces, then coming into this space should relocate you in your true identity as a child of god are you with me next which brings us to conversations about liturgy so liturgy is a fancy word which just means the work of the people liturgy is what we do up here it is our rituals and our habits one writer talks about there are liturgies all over the place that are both thin or that are thick with meaning uh, and so like, you know, a thin liturgy might be brushing your teeth in the morning. You do it every day, but it doesn't really like tell you much about who you are, or where you are in the world. What was happening here, these are heavy, deeply meaningful liturgies. When we started the service and you read for us a psalm, that was a call into the presence of God. When we planned that, we said this is the call to worship. And that call is like a door that gets opened. And you enter into this new time and space. In a little bit, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to eat the meal. This is a a liturgy deep and full of meaning. Preaching is not talking about Jesus. It is an incarnated act of bringing the living, crucified Christ into our midst. It is a liturgical act. It's part of why I do actually tremble a little bit before I get up here. But there are liturgies all over the place. So I'm going to talk about two that are not church. Because part of what we do in worship is we reform ourselves. We are reformed over against the liturgies of the world. But one of the like subtle parts of of what we might call um, non-Jesus liturgy uh, is that you wouldn't notice that it's happening to you. It would just happen to you. And then you would... Be formed in directions you did not intend, right? That's that language of you were walked a place you did not want to go. You found a path you were not trying to discover. So next slide. Two places where uh, liturgies are heavy. The stadium and the mall. Uh, who all watched the World Series? Right. Yeah. Could you feel... Could you feel the liturgical movements of being part of that fan base? It might have even felt... A little bit like church. It's like one of the few places where people sing together. Or you could say that like a Dodger dog is like communion. (laughs) I'm only kind of joking here, folks. Uh, Or when a team wins and you dump all of that drink on that coach, it's like a baptism. They've like been made new. (laughs) I'm not joking. Next slide. I'm from New Orleans. This is a shirt that uh, gets printed. That is the Superdome. The saints play in the Superdome. And uh, this is how folks in the city understood Sundays. See you at church. But church was the game. You put on your, your Sunday best, it would say. I'm going to read you a passage from a book I've been reading this week about cultural liturgies, particularly what it means... To say that big national sporting events are a kind of liturgical act. Again, when we say liturgy in this context, this is a set of habits or rituals that create and sustain meaning. Usually national myths, and I don't myths in something that's false, but myths in something that is really big and true. y'all started singing you had everybody stand right and when you kind of do this motion it's like magic everybody just stands up that same thing happens in big sporting events usually it's whenever the national anthem is played please stand for the national anthem and like parishioners who all know the motions of the mass by heart these fans instinctively and automatically Rise together, they remove their caps, they place a hand over their heart as an artist or a group sings a rendition of one of the world's most affecting national anthems. Laden with military themes such that those singing it are transposed into battle. The identity of the nation being wrapped up in its revolutionary beginnings and legacy of military power. Perhaps even more importantly, this rehearses and renews the myth of national identity forged by blood sacrifice. There is a reason that we have created these rituals of meaning at these big public sporting events. Partly it's a way to ritualize war when we're not fighting and to tell the stories of what we hope war might mean for us, that we won, that we were strong, that we are powerful, that we're Viral, All of those kind of things. Now, here's the thing about a public liturgy. In the same way that if, as I was preaching right now, I had tearaway pants and I ripped them off, right? You'd be like, that's not appropriate in a liturgy. We don't do those kind of things. It would be considered sacrilegious. Uh, three of you thought I was going to do it. Um, if these public rituals name and claim us in some kind of grounding identity, then what happens when someone defects? What happens when someone does not play along with the script? That would be called apostasy. Next slide. That's part of why this has become so explosive. Kneeling when everyone's supposed to be standing is heresy. If we are inside of a religious context. I'm intentionally asking you to feel the tension of this moment. Liturgies are powerful. When someone steps outside of them. They make themselves vulnerable. It's like when Jesus heals on the wrong day. And the religious leaders like you can't do that. That's breaking the script. Stepping outside of the liturgy. Next slide. The mall. This is another place of meaning. Like if our religion is, uh, is endless consumption, and there's a good argument for that being our religion as Westerners, then the mall is a really good church. Uh, there are two places I want to talk about the mall, and it's sacramentally. So sacraments are places, uh, means of grace... This is a sacrament, the Lord's table. Baptism is a sacrament in our tradition. In other traditions, there are other sacraments like marriage or confession. Um, but in the mall, there are sacraments. As I was thinking about this week, I realized when you go into a dressing room and you change clothes and you go put on those fancy new clothes, it is like baptism. Because what do we do in baptism? We enter into the waters without our clothes on, wearing these white robes. In the ancient times, baptism was crazy. You would go get baptized like literally naked you would take off the clothes of this world you would enter into the water and for fun effect the priest would spit on you and renounce the devil because spit has special powers with the devil if you didn't know and then when you came out of the waters you would put on new clothes you'd put on usually like a white robe that would signify a new you i mean if that's not what we do at the mall i don't know what is go into the mall as an old person and come out renewed, maybe with our hair done, with new clothes on, and then we go and take communion at the food court. Again, I'm kind of poking fun, but like the argument that Jesus makes in the Gospels is that it is God and not Caesar who feeds and clothes us. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, like, look around you, who do you think created all of this? The lilies are clothed just fine and the birds are eating just fine because God is in charge of this world. But if the malls are anything, there are places where you're well-fed and we are well-clothed. And they tell us, if we listen, who our gods are. It is an immersive experience intentionally. It's why whenever I go to a mall, I get like a little bit nauseous until I really buy into the religion. Then I feel great. And I become new. Next slide. What liturgies are, are like schools of desire. They teach us what to love. And now we're getting to the heart of the thing. I don't know how to love God well. And I definitely don't know how to love God well in isolation from all of you. Or in isolation from the big story that we hear in scripture. And if I'm honest, and if you're honest... The world is telling us what to love all of the time, what to crave and what to desire. And worship, habitual gathering around the big story of Jesus, gives us at least a chance to redirect our affections, to train our hearts. I said last week, it's like just an hour, hour and a half on a Sunday is not really enough because we are competing with how much cultural liturgy out in the world. All of the places that are telling us if you do this, buy this, give your heart to this, you will feel fulfilled. Every car commercial is a liturgy of fulfillment and self-actualization. They're not telling us what this vehicle will do for us pragmatically. They're telling us what kind of person we will be if we buy this vehicle. That is religious language. Every Sunday when you come here, we all, in leadership and together, tell each other who we are. Help to aim our love more precisely toward God and neighbor. Tell each other what neighbor means. It is like cutting channels for desire. That is what liturgy does. That is why it is so important. It is not, it, it is not and can't be optional. In fact, in case We thought this is just like an additive to the spiritual life. And there has been a move in the last like 50 to 100 years toward privatization of faith. Where like I did a Bible study by myself each morning and therefore I met the risen Jesus. But this seems to be saying something else. That the risen Christ is found in between us when we gather with intention and point our hearts in the same direction. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as has become the ethos of some, the belief system of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Next slide. We're rounding out here. Part of what this passage is saying is that there is a necessity to the annoyance of other people. Do you ever think sometimes that like it would be easier To follow Jesus if it weren't for all of the Jesus people that we have to work at it with. Come on, you know you've thought that before. Yeah, It's like the passage knows exactly what our rebuke is going to be of it. Let us become obsessive with how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Next slide. This is the language for provoking. Parazuno. It's a fun Greek word. What it means is to annoy people or to uh, instigate them. The root word of it is the language of like acid. That something about coming to church is like an acid bath for the soul. And everyone raised their hands and signed up for that program. But that's kind of what it's like sometimes. Being reformed, especially when that reformation happens between us, let us become obsessive about annoying one another toward love and good works. Part of what that is saying is we will not find our way to the path that leads to the kingdom of God if not by having folks guide us, sometimes shove us. I know exactly which one of you have shoved me over the last year, and I'm very thankful for that. But it can be, it can be annoying, it can be provoking to have other people get to speak to you and about you in, like, deep truth. Now, it doesn't say, and I'm sorry for those of you who have spent time in churches, say, uh, let's be obsessive about how to provoke one another into a reminder of all of the different ways that you have failed and sinned this week. It doesn't say that. It says, let's provoke one another to love and to good deeds. Which means we need you. Right? Like, just at a base level, it means that we need you. I need you. If I'm going to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, it's not going to be by myself. It's going to be with you. And it's going to be with you. Shoulder to shoulder. Which is why the next part in the passage says, and do not desert one another. That's the language. Don't forsake meeting together, don't desert your family. But continue to meet together, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I know that there is a lot happening in our lives, I know that we are busy. So much of the time we think about worship as the thing that we get to if we have time. If there are other things that don't pull us away. And if you're here because it's like a sightseeing trip for religion, that is fine. Come hang out with us anytime you want. Once a year, twice a year is fine if you're here to sort of see what's happening. But if you are here because you are trying to be made more in the image of Christ, then it's going to take some work and it's going to take some other people. Last slide. This is where we're trying to get. When Jesus dies and the curtain is torn, it is this big screaming message that the way to God has been opened. So in the passage in this letter... It says, since we have confidence to enter into the sanctuary, and here are all the reasons that we have confidence. It's basically all the things that Jesus has done, the reality that Jesus has created. It says, let us draw near. And that is the invitation. To draw near to God. With full assurance. That the door is unlocked. I want and need to encounter the living God. And I have come to the deep conviction that the only way that that is possible is with you all together. And so this Sunday and next Sunday and the one after that, the doors will be open. And we will be running through them with boldness. Would you pray with me? God of all creation, God of Israel, and God of us, we breathe deep your presence in this space. Together we breathe deep your spirit. It is with true gratitude that we gather together. And it is with expectation that we gather together. It is too much sometimes the reality that you are here with us and not far away. And so sometimes we pretend it's not true, God. We live our lives like it's not true thank you for giving us a space to inhabit a time to inhabit and a people to become that might tell us truer things about us than the world ever could reform us in your image so that we might move into the world as representatives of heaven feed us on good food and good drink And clothe us in the big story. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.